Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. My guest today is Congressman Scott Peters, represents the San Diego area in Congress. Uh, He has a bill that is on a subject that is near and dear to my heart. It is the intersection between housing and transit policy. Uh, So, you know, this is probably like not the top thing on the actual congressional agenda, but it really should be. In a better world, it would be. Uh, So we get to really sort of go deep on on this topic. It's it's a passion project of his, too. And I think Weeds fans are really going to love this. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, My guest today, Representative Scott Peters from the 52nd Congressional District in California, is the first member of Congress to be on the show. So thank you so much for being here with us. Wow, that's quite an honor. Thank you, Matthew. There you go. It's a premiere. Hopefully someday we'll have have hundreds. Um, So so you are the author of the Build More Housing Near Transit Act, uh, which is what we're here to talk about. And I want to commend you for having a a bill with a a name that conveys actual meaning instead of a, a cute acronym. It's a terrible acronym. (laughs) But so the idea here, I would take it, is to build more housing. Near transit. Near transit, yes. Um, So yeah, what what does it do? What does the law say? Well, so basically, so here, let me tell you the story of how I came to this idea. Um, I was in local government for a while. I was the city council president and at one time representative to our our planning organization. We wanted to extend a half-cent sales tax that we imposed countywide to support transportation. And, you know, certainly at that time wasn't just transit, but one of the big projects we wanted to do is to extend our existing light rail system from downtown, which is the second biggest job center in San Diego County, to an area called University Town Center, which is the biggest job center. So this is San Diego. Sorry, San Diego. people who don't know, uh, they're California. San Diego, California. Right, sorry about that. Yeah. And uh, we did extend it. And through the half cent sales tax, we've generated a billion dollars to contribute to a project. The other billion dollars came from the federal government through a program called New Starts, which is administered by the Federal Transportation Authority. It's supposed to be a competitive grant project where you bring local money to match federal money. And what I realized after I came to Congress is that, you know, no one ever asked us what we were going to build next to this trolley line. Uh Uh, We call it the trolley, light rail line. And um, it seemed to me that that would be a good question for a couple reasons. One is... If you are a taxpayer just concerned about, you know, using, getting good leverage out of federal money, wouldn't you want to know that there were things that people would use the, the, the trolley to get back and forth from, origins and destinations, particularly homes? 
And then second, if you're an environmentalist and you really want to you, you want to think that public transportation is going to get people out of their cars, uh, you're not going to force them out of the cars. It's got to be attractive, and you, you'd like to build something near there. And, the, and it turns out that in many of these stops that we've envisioned in San Diego for our light rail, there's surface parking lots. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a competitive grant, right. and so they they look at applications from different jurisdictions, and they don't look at the land use. They just right. look at sort of the impact on adjacent and engineering. You know, this is it feasible. And so our bill says, federal government, you need to ask part of the question. You need, we would require a housing assessment and a, an evaluation of land uses around there. But particularly, what's your plan to build housing, both affordable and market rate housing? near this major investment that we're going to make. And that's that's a way to make sure that the, at least the competition considers what projects will be most effective. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that would generate uh, projects with more more ridership and, and like, sort of transit-oriented neighborhoods right. around right. the stops right. instead of, like, park-and-ride uh, exactly. sort of lots, yeah. right? And, and it comes to, at a time, and you've talked about this many times, where— California is facing an acute housing shortage. Mm-hmm. San Diego is is certainly in that in that same boat. And so wouldn't it have been great if the federal government had said to San Diego 10 years ago, you know what, we like your project. We'd like you to, to see you upzone all these various areas along the way. Mm-hmm. And that would make your grant more competitive. So that's mm-hmm. basically the, thing, the, con- the kind of conversation I'm trying to encourage for future projects like this. So uh, you were on city council in, mm-hmm. in San Diego. I mean, why wasn't that sort of part of the calculus just – in, in city politics as as you were looking at this investment? Boy, Matthew, the politics were so much different 10 or 15 years mm-hmm. ago. I got into, I was a, I practiced environmental law for a while, and I got into local government for a couple reasons. One is we had a, a massive number of sewer spills. With the, the investment, the, the city council had just not invested in upgrading the sewer system. And as an environmental lawyer, I thought I could help, you know. Um, we, you know, we like to surf. We like to host tourists. You know, polluted beaches are just not good for us. Sure. Um, but the other thing is that you know we were uh, we were about to undergo a massive um, downtown redevelopment based around a ballpark, which I thought was a really important project to draw more density downtown, which is sort of you know the smart growth ideal. And it was pretty controversial. And I thought they were going to fumble the fumble the ball. Bad bad uh, metaphor, mixed metaphor. <laughs> I thought they were going to drop the ball and not do it. Um, so I got involved in it and just sort of started carried on into politics. And then also some infrastructure projects we had to finish. But, you know, the environmentalists were not for growth, mm-hmm. in, in, even in downtown. At the same time, we had a sort of a large lot zoning uh, ordinance that would have effectively imposed an urban limit line like Portland. We would have said, you can't, you can't upzone the rural areas. And the environmentalists were all for that, but they weren't for the other side of it, which was to build, to build housing. And, and, and this is an equity issue, too, but to build housing in places where— you already had surface parking lots, and people might be able to walk and not use their car. Right. And so you're it, saying if you if you want to constrain the sprawl right. of the city, you need to put yeah, put right, things exactly. in where, where it's already right. developed. Right. And then Portland started that in the 70s, but that certainly wasn't the politics in San Diego at the time. And now uh, I think people understand the connection better. And even we've even got a an ascendant YIMBY movement. So the obviously the opposite of not, not in my backyard, but yes in my backyard. Mm-hmm. So that the politics have changed quite a bit. But back then. If if environmentalists came out to talk about a housing project, even an infill project, it was usually to oppose it. Mm-hmm. So e- there's been a, a, a change. I mean, I think I think Gimby sentiment seems uh, stronger in San Diego than in uh, yeah sort of most other other cities I've I've seen. Do you have a, a theory of why that is? Uh, because we're great. I mean, I, <laughs> I um 
I am so proud of the of the of the way it's taken off. I I uh, I think that there's some good civic leadership. We have a um, a group started as Move San Diego. I helped um, form when I got out of the city council. Now it's Circulate San Diego. It deals with walking and uh, and they've been very good at explaining this connection between the right kind of building and mobility. Mm-hmm. I think also people are tired of not being able to afford homes. Um, and there's a, a awareness among young people that there's some activism that could be applied toward that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I just, for some reason, I think there's a, there's, and, and I think we have a club called Yimby Dems, Yimby Democrats, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm a founding uh, member and dues paying member. Um, and they'll let me know after this podcast if my <laughs> dues are expired. But, um, but it's a it's an exciting time in San Diego, and I think um, it's there's a lot of challenges ahead because making change in neighborhoods, I know, is very very difficult. But now that we have a sort of a, a civic understanding that this is the right thing to do and a good thing for our future, I think the politics could be very constructive. So you you were saying making making changes in neighborhoods is is difficult, and, oh and that's gosh. where yeah. <laughs> that's where it's maybe useful to have would be useful to have the federal government playing a role, kind of saying, hey, you you got to make a change here. Well, right, and to provide incentives. I think mm-hmm. um, we know that if you have a surface parking lot, and I have experience with this, uh, and you develop into a, a beautiful four-story building with, you know, apartments on the top and, and good retail, community-serving retail on the bottom, at the end of it, people like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can, as long as it's designed, you know, fairly attractively. But getting through it is is just hell. I mean, I always said there's two attitudes towards change in San Diego. There's one group of people who are deeply skeptical, and the rest of them are absolutely opposed. <laughs> because you know you're you know you you have this sense that taking this risk, I, I'd rather stay with mediocre than take the risk of something awful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it's a hard thing to do that. But that's what sort of civic leadership's about, and it can't just come from downtown or, or Washington. It's got to come from. Um, the neighborhoods themselves. Yeah, because I mean, it is. Uh, you know, there's been a, a, a project going up a, across the, the street from me in in Washington. It's a it's a good project. You know, apartment buildings. There's an affordable element. There's right. some offices. There's some retail. But they've been building it now for a while, and it's like it's noise. It's rats. Like the streets closed. And That's right. I, I, I have like a new sympathy for for a NIMBY sentiment. At the same time, or, I, I mean, I think the point of this legislation is like, if we're going to be building mass transit projects, like we should be doing something something useful with those stations. And we should have an expectation as taxpayers and as uh, as, as policymakers that we're going to get something for it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a billion dollars per, ought to provide you a little bit of leverage. It's a lot of money. <laughs> and so um, that, that sort of was my thinking, too. I, and I think the good thing is that it's, you know, the, the planners love it. Uh, I think the, the planning community thinks this is a good thing. The taxpayer community thinks it's a good thing. My chief co-sponsor is Kathy McMorris-Rogers, who I think is the fourth, third or fourth ranking Democrat or Republican uh, in Congress. And so um, it's very bipartisan. I think we got a really good ch- chance of getting this passed either on its own or as part of a larger transportation bill. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask about next is what's the sort of uh, coalition that, that you have here? I mean, what kind of uh, groups uh, have been supporting this? Because uh, it's, you know, it's a little off the, the national political radar, but sometimes that's where progress can happen. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to be able to tell you that I'm going to solve the immigration uh, <laughs> battle during the Trump administration. But but that's the kind of thing where, you know, you look for these things, these problems that you can chip away at. Uh, and the coalition, I like, I think, is, is is what I described. It's environmentalists and planners on one hand, and then it's taxpayers on the other hand. Mm-hmm. 
And so we've had a really good response. When we tell people about this in, in, in a uh, bipartisan groups, they say, yeah, let me be a co-sponsor. So how, how does New Starts, New Starts, do you know about, how, how much money is this? How sort of influential is it in, in transit projects nationally? Uh, I think it is about $300 million a year. It's a lot of money for transportation. Yeah. And this is the, the, the main federal mass transit program. Right. That, right. that, that happens exactly. here, right? So, and, so think about it, too. There, there's a difference between uh, building transit in a place like Washington or Chicago or New York or Boston, which are pre-World War II cities that are already very densely packed, don't have side yard setbacks, um, weren't built around the automobile, and then trying to, to fit it into a, a newer cities mm-hmm. like Orlando or San Diego or or Austin. And so um, the New Starts program is particularly important in directing those policy choices. Right. Because th- that's, I think, like the big sort of question for Sunbelt cities in the United States. And and a lot of them, um, San Diego has built a, a light rail system. Phoenix has mm-hmm. one now. Um, Los Angeles has been making a, a very big investment in its, its metro. But East Coast cities, we sort of built trains, and then the city grew around them. Uh, whereas, you know, in, in the South, in the West, uh, you have cities that were built around cars and now, to an extent, are trying to sort of, like, retrofit them, right? And, right. and the question is, like, how much how much change can that drive and how much do people want to see change, right? And, yeah. and, and you're essentially asking here for, for more, more change to follow this money. Right. So I always make the pitch that things are going to change. I think San Diego, we expect to grow from about 3.2 million to 4 million people in our county uh, over the next, you know, 10 to 12 years. I said, things are going to change. Mm-hmm. Now, what what do you want that change to look like? Do you want it to be continued people driving out an hour away because that's what all they can afford and clogging up your highways and your air? Or do you want it to be like, let's see if we can fit some of these people in here? And and the idea, the, the challenge, Matthew, is to is to is to make sure people don't see this as something that they have to accept as a compromise. I mean, to to be able to say we can invest in your neighborhood and make it better. Mm-hmm. We had a planning commissioner um, really wanted this thing to be approved. The neighbors were all mad, and she says something like, um, "You're just going to have to swallow some of this." <laughs> now, that is not exactly the pitch you want to make to people to get them to to say, "Listen, how can we how can we encourage investments in our neighborhood that will create more housing, more walkability, make it more interesting, make it more fun to live?" That's not that's not how you got to Congress no. telling, telling people, <laughs> You're gonna just sorry, you got to yeah. swallow it. Yeah. She's an appointed first person, not elected. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's uh, that's that's the nuance of politics. Okay. Yeah. Let me, let's take a, a quick break here. And then, then I want to ask you about some of the, the larger California context. Great. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. 
You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. The backdrop to this, obviously, is that the housing situation uh, in a number of places in the United States, but I think California very famously, has gotten quite uh, quite dire. Um, and, and I wonder, you can think, uh, how, how does this this play into that? Like, what's your sort of bigger thoughts on, on housing in California? A lot of us who uh, work on policy issues in California are trying to figure out what we can do to get more housing. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think it's pretty well understood that housing availability and, and, and affordability is the biggest obstacle to the continued prosperity of our state, which has been booming. It's the fifth largest economy, I think, now. And it's generated a lot of uh, terrific uh, change and ideas and wealth. But if we can't afford to live there, um, you know, this will not continue. And this is a kind of paradox of success, right? I mean, California, well, it's, right. it's, it's, yeah. it's nice, it's good yeah. weather, you've got a lot of big companies there, right. um, so people want to want to move there, and it's, right. it's becoming a problem. And there are a lot of challenges, uh, particularly to California. One is we have this Proposition 13, mm-hmm. which um, really encourages you to stay in your house as long as you can. Uh-huh. So if you're uh, 65 years old and you and your wife are, are, are uh, in the house that you raised your kids in, and you've owned it for a long time, your taxes are very low because it can only go up a little bit per mm-hmm. year. It's basically 1% with hardly any adjustments. And you might move to something much smaller and find your property tax go through the roof because the price of that is is so much higher and it's assessed on the sale. So that really keeps people um, where they are. So we, that, that discourages people who sort of don't need the space from, right. from reallocating, right? right. So, so, family, so new families can't take over the right. existing housing. And potentially from redeveloping properties into something more because, mm-hmm. you know, you're served, you're served tax incentivized to stay. We also have a, a thing where the state gives localities 1% of sales taxes. Mm-hmm. So for a long time, and when I was in the city council again a, a decade, decade and a half ago, the game was to try to get as much retail in your area as, as possible because the sales that happen in your city, you get to keep some of. Okay, That's totally changed now, too, because of the Internet affecting retail so much. And, you know, what we really ought to do is give cities more property tax revenue to incentivize investments that raise values like housing. You know, we have uh, zoning codes that are very defensive. It's not uncommon in San- in California to um, have localities that have said, if you want to raise density, you have to have a vote of the people. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, there's an effort in the state uh, uh, by Senator Weiner. I'm sure you're familiar with SB 50. Yes. To try to um, push back on some of the local zoning. That's probably a really constructive thing to do, mm -hmm. like to tell cities and counties, you know, hey, you have to allow some growth here and there. Uh, and we have to figure out how to deal with avoiding the fire uh, areas. Right. So um, the urban uh, wildlife interface is a, a place where, you know, in San Diego, we had major fires lost, you know, we lost a lot of homes in 2003, and 2007. Uh, the worst one was the Paradise Fire. Um, and, you know, you have to be careful about that. So there's a lot of challenges out there right now. And building housing near transit seems like one really right. easy solution. <laughs> so think. you're talking about p putting development restrictions that are based on public safety concerns rather than sort of arbitrary. Right. You know, I, I don't I don't want to see this happen near me. Right? Yeah, my view of the tree. Right. And I think that's the thing we're gonna, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to understand that along these areas where buses and and trains ride, um, you know, we need to have four six story buildings, and they can be beautiful and they can they can be really cool, but um, they're gonna have to be four or six stories. Right, and you're presumably not gonna put the light rail line like right through the wildfire zone. Right. right? Yeah. So that's, the, that's the, the current plan. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the idea is you take places where it's safe, where it's already not a natural environment, right. right? And you say, okay, we're going to have higher capacity transportation here. We're going to have more people living here. Right. But but not you're going to have to swallow it. Right. I mean, exactly. <laughs> so, I'm, but what, what do you do? You know, so I, I, I grew up in Manhattan. So I love that lady, by the way. She's great. No, I mean, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I just thought it was a bad moment. <laughs> it's it's the difference between, you know, a, a professional planner, I think, and uh -huh. a politician. Yeah. is knowing what to say sometimes in, in that kind of thing. So I, I grew up in Manhattan. So, you know, I've never been uh, frightened of tall buildings. Right. Um, but, you know, obviously a lot of people, though, do have these kinds of concerns. And, and like, what, what, what do you say? I mean, trying to be more politic to somebody who, uh, you know, really worries about the implications of apartment buildings coming into their school district, uh, into their street, into their neighborhood. I think you just have to fight it with facts. You know, um, I'll tell you another story, if I can, about a neighborhood that we redesigned yep. in my district, Bird Rock. When I knocked on doors in La Jolla to try to become the city council member, um, I heard the same thing over and over again. And one neighborhood heard La Jolla Boulevard is is a danger. The traffic comes through here too fast. And in fact, it was six lanes um, through through a neighborhood where on either side, you, you couldn't find a house for less than you know a million five, right? Beautiful yep. neighborhood. Uh, but the restaurants all failed. The maintenance was down. They said, you're going to fix this thing. And I said, okay, let's fix it. So... After I got elected, I held Bird Rock Week, and we had uh, we had talks on transportation, on design, on financing, and we had about 50, 60 people come, and we came up with a sort of standard diagonal parking and traffic lights plan, announced it to the neighborhood, and all of a sudden, boom, it's like it's people are so angry, <laughs> and how dare you come up with this plan from downtown, and and, you know, in politics, you sort of get a sense for when something's really a big issue, and it's, you know, that this is something we really have to worry about. And my uh, chief of staff said, you know, you have to go to the community and you have to let them vent. So I okay. went to Bird Rock Elementary School, August 1st, 2001. 350 people all lined up at the microphone yelling at me uh, how awful I was. And I'm thinking, you know, I gave up this legal career <laughs> to do this stupid job. I'm, you know, I'm not going to get pushed around. And so I just said, I said, OK, we're not going to do nothing because that would have been the temptation. Just right. forget it. I said, you're going to decide what to do. And so we put a committee together each. And this is getting them involved. Each block, I put one person on. So we had about 20 people. 
and I hired them a walkability consultant named Dan Burden. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's mm-hmm. uh, he's like a hippie-looking guy, and he he came in his in his uh, sort of Caltrans fluorescence <laughs> jacket, walked them around, did two design charrettes with them. I told them, don't do overpass or you know a tunnel, and we'll figure out how to do it. And they came up with five modern roundabouts. Okay. Um, we had a 139-unit condo project that was going to come in to replace a hotel. And so um, they paid for a little bit of it. We had a smart growth grant, $5.6 million. A bunch of years later, a bunch of permits later, we had an award-winning redesign, walkability. The, the, the neighbors were so proud of what they had created. They assessed themselves to, to pay for the landscape. And you'd hear conversations in their table you know, where, where one was talking to the other, and they'd say, oh, no, no, uh, a, a modern roundabout conveys traffic much more efficiently than traffic. <laughs> and they knew all this stuff. And so it was so cool. And the, the lesson was there's two parts of it. One part of it is you have to educate and empower the community, mm-hmm. but also you have to say you're going to do something. Mm-hmm. So you need, you need political leadership, but you need community partnership. And I think that's the way you do it. And the way, I think the way you – what happens now is people say, why can't we do Bird Rock in my neighborhood? Mm-hmm. And the key to that, though, was getting people to see that you were going to do something. Yes. Right? right. Right. And so then once they started thinking about— Then they think, I better be in the room. Right. And you think about the options, right? right. There's trade-offs, right? right? And and I mean, I think in, in the housing context, right, it's that, well, people aren't going to vanish if we don't build housing Correct. for yeah. them, right? Yeah. It's, it's got to go someplace. Um, and if we have sprawl— I think people don't—I I still think people don't see that trade-off, yeah. that they think that it's okay if people drive two hours, right. unfortunately. Um, and I and you—they think that my neighborhood will be worse off with more stuff in it. And right. that's the battle that you have. Because you lived in New York. You mm-hmm. know how great New York can be. Now, the thing—the challenge for us in San Diego is— my daughter lives in New York now, and mm-hmm. the thing she complains about all the time is she can't get to nature. Sure. You know, so she, she, you know, we have to preserve that in San Diego. Yeah. So we still have to have our, our you know, we have great open spaces. I think we have a park system that's geographically one of the largest in the country. There's no reason we have to develop that. Right. When we can develop along these corridors that, that have transportation, maybe we can reduce the requirements for parking. We, we just— um, remove the requirement for minimum parking. I think Portland does maximum parking. Yes. And I think um, we're definitely not there yet, but <laughs> but a transition away from the car that's very conscious and planned uh, can make for, much, for a much better town. Well, and also this is, I mean, part of what uh, p- people like about West Coast cities, as you say, is that you can be close to nature, even even kind of in the city. Right. Uh, but that does mean, you know, if you if you want to preserve that, then you can't have the development sort of going out and out right. and out Can't be one-story building forever. It's true. Right. Right. And so then houses have to go someplace. Right. Right. And so you're saying put them downtown. All right, let's take, take a second break. I want to uh, ask more about Congress. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. So you got some bipartisan co-sponsors on this bill. Um, Something I found is that I feel like the environmental community is still sometimes of, of two minds about 
housing development. Um, you you spoke about that uh, years ago, but I, I feel like oftentimes I've seen local environmental groups opposing rezoning and, and density type plans. And is that your experience on, on the national level at all? I think at the national level, you're really removed from the community to community stuff to the detriment, I think, sometimes of, uh, you know, I think it takes away from our effectiveness. Because if hmm. you don't understand what happens when the gears mesh at a local level, you know, you're you're going to miss the, miss the point, miss some of the nuance. So um, I don't see it as much as at the national level, but whenever I read about what's happening in Berkeley uh-huh. uh, or what's happening in, you know, in D.C. over some development or what's happening in Raleigh-Durham, I know that battle. I've, I, I know those words. I know that people say are saying things like, I'm not against development. This is just the wrong place for it. Uh-huh. You know, I'm not against affordable housing. You know, this is just the wrong place for it. And that's the, that's the kind of battle that people fight all over the country still. Right. But so in in Congress, though, I mean, do you do you feel sort of in, environmental groups are, are going to want to go for, for something like this legislation? Oh, yeah, I do. I think yeah. I think that this makes total sense for all the environmental groups. My, my issue with the environmental groups here is that um, we have to develop more bipartisanship around, particularly around climate action. Mm-hmm. There's a notion that we can do this as one party, and if we really view this as a, you know, winning the next world war or sending someone to the moon, that kind of effort requires national unity, and, and I think we're slow on finding that. Uh, that's what I would ask of the environmental right. groups here. Well, I mean, it's it's hard. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> hard, right? Yeah. I say my, bipartisanship <laughs> is my lane, and there's no traffic in my lane. <laughs> but so this has at least some appeal to Republicans because it's, uh, on one level, a deregulatory measure, right? It's a taxpayer accountability thing, too. You know, I think, you know, it says we're going to invest a a gazillion dollars in your neighborhood. We want you to to assure us it's going to perform. Except to get, uh, you would need conservatives to still want to spend some money on mass transit projects, right? right? I, I think mean, it's, it, you're, you're saying given that we're going to spend this money, it's a taxpayer accountable. Yes, right. that's, that's a mean, fair, that, fair point. Because I would say there's not a lot, there's there's not always a lot of support um, among the Republican Party for transit as there is among Democrats. Right. I mean, that's, that's the challenge, right? I mean, I think it's, yes, if you accept the premise uh, that there's going to be money spent on this, then it, right. it makes a lot of sense to say, yes. well, we should spend it on good projects rather than bad ones. Right. Uh, but I, I think the Trump administration uh, just came out with a proposal that basically just scrapped federal, federal transit funding. Yeah. They, uh, I mean, they're, their politics are, are awful. They, you know, they, <laughs> they try to zero out science research and all this stuff. And, I, I I would be concerned about that. I would also predict that um, I, I would bet on the status quo. Yes. <laughs> you know, in terms of trying to seek bipartisanship, though, I mean, how, how do you do that? I mean, what, what level of interest do you see from Republicans in anything related to climate? Well, oh, climate. There's a lot of yeah. openings now, I think. Hmm. Actually, um, you know, it's a really good question. I, I, I just talked to the Select Committee on Climate yesterday about this. So a few things. One— I'm on the Energy and Commerce Committee, and the EPA Administrator Wheeler came in and was asked about climate change. And he says, yes, I think climate, the climate's changing, and yes, it has to do a lot with human activity, including the uh, burning of fossil fuels. That's the same answer Gina McCarthy would have given from the Obama administration, and it's not the same answer that Scott Pruitt gave. Now, not that their policies are exactly <laughs> reflecting a response to that. Okay. That's something. Um, That's like baby steps. My uh, my colleague from West Virginia, Dave McKinley, um, when we were talking about trying to get back into the Paris Agreement, uh, gave this compassionate speech about uh, India and China having to do their part. But he says, if they don't do their part, you know, we're still going to have wildfires and droughts and Miami's still going to flood. Okay. So he was acknowledging kind of <laughs> that, you know, maybe coal was having an impact like that. 
in Florida, uh, the Republicans have seen that the streets are wet on sunny days, and mm -hmm. they they know they can't ignore it. So you see that from Governor Scott Rick DeSantis, my former, I mean, uh, Senator Scott Rick DeSantis, my former colleague, they're even talking about climate responses. Uh, Matt Gates, who's probably the biggest Trumper around, is, sure. is, he's the co-author along with Rooney, Francis Rooney, Brian Mast of legitimate climate legislation. So there's some movement there. And I think you can't overlook what's happening in the religious side. So the Pope has made this a big deal, obviously. But there's something called the Evangelical Environmental Network, which is you know, these are people that I can't talk to about a woman's right to choose or, mm -hmm. you know, marriage equality. That's just not – we're not going to agree on that. But we can have a conversation about saving God's creation and, and a real scientific one too. So I think there's a lot of openings that we have to recognize. And I, I think we should run for that unity and get what we can. If I was in Sacramento, California, mm -hmm. and two-thirds Democrats, I'd do all sorts of stuff like they do there. You know, like, <laughs> uh, you know, we've got a low-carbon fuel standard, which is a, a, an example for the country. We've got a requirement that the utilities go net zero by 2045. I can't get that passed here. Sure. So I want to think now about what I can do to get progress, to get more people involved in the effort so we can get carbon pricing. And think, there's, a, there's bipartisan carbon pricing proposals. So. Mm -hmm. I think I think there's an there's openings that we should not ignore. I'm mm -hmm. not saying that it's going to be easy or that it's going to be like working in California, but I think there's room for progress. So does that mean turning away from the sort of like Green New Deal type rhetoric and and just focusing on these kind of smaller things? Is that uh, I think so. I, you know, like I um the thing about the Green New Deal is I probably agree with everything in there about climate. They've added things like a federal jobs guarantee and free college, and we could talk about that separately. But what we should not do is burden the already almost impossible task of saving the planet from incineration with more of these restructuring the economy uh, goals. I think it just makes the task harder. And that's what Greta Thunberg said, by the way, the activist, the Swedish activist. She mm -hmm. says, you know, like, this is not about green jobs. This is about saving the planet. And the green jobs will come and, and uh, benefits will come from it, but let's keep our eye on the ball. And so I think that um, to the extent that we're, you know, we're arguing with ourselves about the Green New Deal. I mean, we should be thinking about how we make progress on decarbonizing electricity, transportation, industry, you know, agriculture, um, buildings. And we can make a lot of progress without confronting the extra stuff that people want us to confront. Uh, uh, and so do you think, uh, you know, so so your bill uh, is on housing, transit. Obviously, it's a relatively small piece of the overall national right. kind of housing pie. Do you see other areas for, for the federal government to get more involved in, in housing policy that you think could be potentially useful? Uh, we do something called the low-income tax credit, which mm -hmm. I think is still really important. And the idea of that is to, you know, where the market's not generating um, housing uh, that can be rent-restricted, right? Um, we fill in the gap, essentially. Sure. And the value of that was on the natural harmed when the Republicans cut tax rates because you don't get as much of a benefit right. off of a deduction. So there's efforts to try to bolster that. I mm -hmm. think that would be useful. Right, so this is a, the, the low-income housing right. tax credit. Right. Basically, what happened was uh, they, they cut the corporate tax rate. Right? And, and the individual rate. In the individual right. tax rate. Right. And so that means that claiming that credit is not as useful right. to investors as it used to be. Doesn't make you as much money. Right. So it's um, it's led to a sort of a, a – and this is for like subsidized projects, right? right? right. And so now we're getting fewer yeah. of those. The, the other thing, the other role for the federal government is with respect to disasters. So mm -hmm. we have spent – we spend all this money off budget. One of the first votes I took when I was elected, I took office in 2013 – 
was the Super Storm Sandy response. I think we spent $60 billion off budget. Mark Meadows, who's the you know head of the um, Tea Party, and I have a bill called the Disaster Act, which would require us to do budgeting around disasters. So even look at how much money we're spending. Now, I know this is climate-related stuff. Sure. Mark Meadows doesn't have to admit that. He could just say, we got to get a hold of this disaster money. But one of the things we have to think about is what, what do we want to incentivize with respect to fire and flood risks? Mm-hmm. Do we want to keep paying for people to rebuild in flood zones? And do we want to keep paying 100%? Maybe what we should do is provide incentives through reducing those subsidies to local governments not to build in flood zones mm-hmm. and in fire risk areas. I think the federal government could have a role there, you know, using our the power of our disaster purse mm-hmm. uh, to to encourage good behavior locally. To encourage people to sort of uh, change where where the housing is is built and, into. and comply with better building codes, you know, mm-hmm. and and so to be more resilient. I think that we we should be we should be pushing better resiliency among local governments. Do you think you could also could could you sneak some some zoning type stuff in through that? Yeah, I mean, I would. Menu, like if your city gets so, flattened by a hurricane, you got to build it back at mid-rises. And- yeah, I mean, that's the kind of thing I think I think that's the kind of thing we should be talking about with respect to disaster relief. Like what happens next time? We, you know, this is not going to get better. Right. This is going to get worse. I know fires in, in California um, are one of the big climate um, climate risks that we face. And you know, we just it would be idiotic for us to continue to to push our push our luck and build into those areas without better building codes and without a better understanding of where the fire uh, risk is. So you're talking to an extent here. I mean, I think this is a tough call for some people, but to to an extent, admitting that we are not going to like fully get a handle on the climate change problem, right, and are going to have to make policy for a world in which this disaster severity keeps increasing. Yeah, I do think that um, if we stopped emitting um, carbon today, there's still a lot of climate uh, effects that are baked in. Carbon dioxide lasts Mm -hmm. a long time. So I think we understand that sea level rise is something we have to plan for. But, you know, obviously we better get our act together. I, I'm very optimistic, by the way. I'm, I'm, I'm by nature optimistic. I live in San Diego, California. I get on a plane to go to Washington, D.C. every week to do work with the hope that I will, you know, solve these problems. <laughs> How uh, optimistic are you? San Diego is a very nice place to live. <laughs> if I was not optimistic, I don't think I would leave. Um, no, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm determined. I think it's, um, I think this is the challenge of our time. I um, feel that we are spending a lot of energy fighting, and I think we should be spending more time listening. I don't think it's helped by the atmosphere created around the current impeachment um, areas. But, like, our job is to compartmentalize and to see where we can (laughs) agree on things. And, okay, (laughs) fair enough. Um, So, uh, before I'm serious, (laughs) man. This is so novel, you know, but I guess. It's, uh, yeah, it's it's sweet. I can can hear the Twitter people yelling at you. Give me a break. Um, It's going to be, (laughs) it's going to be quite a thing. Um, So, uh, but before I let you go, I I like to ask people, you know, it's uh, what, what, what do you wish I had asked you? What, uh, what, what should we have gotten to here on this subject? I'd love to boast about my hometown more. I think you should, if you're lived in Manhattan, (laughs) you should visit San Diego. I think uh, um, it's a fantastic place. I'm really proud of what's, what's coming out of there in the, the thing about it is the innovative characteristics of, of uh, California, I would like to see more of them in Washington. All right. Just more of an openness and more of a, a positive view of the future. And I'll try to keep bringing that to Washington to the extent I can. All right. Representative Scott Peters, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Um, and thanks, as always, uh, to, to our sponsors here. Uh, thanks to Malachi Brodus uh, for engineering here, Jackson Bierfeld, our producer. And the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. 